you're listening to the Fearless Business Podcast. You're in the best place to learn about how to grow a business, get more clients, and make more money without fears and limitations, all while having fun in the process. Robin Waite is the founder of Fearless Business, a business accelerator helping coaches, consultants, and freelancers double their income and more. Now here's your host, Robin Waite. Welcome back, everybody. It's the Fearless Business Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Waite, and I've got an amazing guest on today in Dave Gammon. He has a 25-year business career, uh, which started from him as a 16-year-old clerical assistant, uh, right the way through to director of financial operations for businesses such as Tesco's, Selfridges, Diageo, Ernst & Young, Energis. I mean, we could name probably there's a dozen or two dozen more, I should think, Dave. Plenty of them. <laughs> Welcome to the Fearless Business Podcast, Dave. Thanks, Robin. Pleasure to be here and share some, uh, hopefully, some interesting ideas with you guys. Well, judging by what we were chatting about before we went live, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're gonna, there's going to be some, definitely some interesting stuff to get stuck into. But where mm. I wanted to start was something really interesting which you said around um, this transformational journey which um, you help your clients go on. Uh, kind of, I, can't, I don't know the technical term for it, but you said, learn how to coach yourself. So I'm interested to know mm. a little bit more about that before we get into kind of um, day. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I suppose if you can come up with a term for it, I'd be immensely grateful because I've struggled to thus far. If you can productize what I do, then I'd be immensely grateful to you. But so this kind of journey started for me about 12 years ago. I left the corporate world now. And um, uh, initially I went into coaching franchise, Action Coach. I was with them for five, six years. Um, but there was a pivotal moment on that journey. And it, it was, I was thinking about marketing as a business coach, you know, how do I market and attract clients? And so one of the way, one of the questions you attend to in that process is why do you, why do you need a business coach? You know, that, so that's the fundamental answer. If you want to market yourself as a coach, you need to understand why people need a business coach. And then one day I was just kind of almost kind of meditating on that idea and it suddenly occurred to me, I was asking the wrong question. The question was, why do people think they need a business coach? And just in that little subtle shift, it was like one of those insight moments where my head exploded. And I thought, if I can work with people at a level where I can permanently transform the way they are thinking about their company and about themselves... They'd never need a coach. And, and it was a journey I went through myself, you know, through um, the work I did with, with one of my mentors, Dr. Joseph Riggio, um, that was a kind of an instantly transformational experience. And, and once that happened to me, I realized that is what I want to do. So in many ways, for me, it was how do I move away from this kind of retained model? You know, the action coach thing was very much every week, every fortnight, sit down with your client, you know, get client, keep client. And I thought, I only want to be around as long as it's helpful for me to be around. If I've managed to engineer someone in such a way that they can go on and do what they do without me, uh, without the need to keep paying me, that's a great success. And of course, it means I can get more people. I can reach more people because I don't run out of time on that journey. 
Well, I'm, I'm a massive fan of that because it means that actually for the coach, it's no longer about it being commercial. I need money as a coach. Now yeah. it's about how can I get the best results for the clients? And I, I find uh, my clients quite often come back to me and they say, um, Robin, we were going to call you, but then we actually just thought, well, what would Robin say? And, and that kind of more often yeah, yeah. not just helps them to answer that, that question, you know, and it's really funny. There are so many c- coaches out there where they're trying to get people. And, and I do encourage this as well, because obviously we have to put food on the table and earn a living. You do need to get retainers, but it's how you go about doing that. Yeah. So obviously for like that, you know, we've got a lot of coaches and consultants and freelancers in there who are still very much tied for that, to that time for money. How do you start to make that transition as a time for money coach to the, the much more sort of holistic approach of you lean in when you need my help? I've got to say some of it is, is, is in the, the confidence of you as the coach, you know, because there, there's a certain degree. And I remember the first time I started to work in this way, and I started to run programs with the, with the directors I was working in that were transformational programs. At the end of the program, you don't need me. I remember when I started to get feedback from them about, oh, yeah, we had this major problem in the business and we solved it. There was a part of my ego that was caught up in, why didn't they reach out to me? I'm, I'm supposed to be the one that helps. you know. So it was learning to let go of that. But also it's learning to focus not so much on what the person needs to do, but how is the person seeing the world? And how do I get them to recognize that the way they are seeing the world, the way they are looking at their company, the way they are looking at their team is what is driving the the decisions, good or bad, and the action or inaction that they do or don't take? Because that's the transformational lever. When I get them to realize just how full of, kind of horseshit they actually are, they begin to transform. So one of the things, a lot of my clients, there's a term gammonisms. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that I like that it. seems to have caught fire around my client base where they, 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 they think of a gammonism in a situation. They think of, and it is, it's very similar to what you said. What would Robin do? What would Dave say here? You know, and it's and that that they've. I, I'm a very strong user of story and metaphor in my work because I know that that's really what kind of anchors transformation. So I have these pithy little phrases that come, but behind the phrase is a story, and behind that story is the potential to transform the way the person thinks, and and they come out with these pithy little phrases, and that's what they refer to as a gammonism. Do you think, um, you used the word ego a bit earlier on, do you think, I mean, there must be other other sort of um, blocks that kind of stop people from going, oh, do you know what, I just need some help. Um, you know, ego is obviously one of them and pride, but what are the other, I mean, you work with a lot of kind of big corporate businesses and you must have access to some super bright people who are just like totally getting in their own way. So what are like, you know, can you give some more examples of um, areas, well, common problems that you see in sort of... Yeah, I'll do it by way of a story if I might. Do, yeah, go for oh, it. Um, the um, so and by the way, when we say corporate businesses, I'm not working with big corporations. You know that my my career was with them, but yeah. but my businesses, my clients, typically between one million and my biggest clients, 140 million. But they are pretty much owner managed companies. Yeah. So let, let me give let me give you by by way of an example. So one of the companies I've worked with or worked with many years ago. In fact, while I was still under the guise of Action Coach at that point, uh, was a swimming pool construction company. I've worked with a few swimming pool builders. 
And um, very early on in our relationship, we had a conversation about um, the demographics of his market. I said, okay, who do you sell these things to? And we were, we were trying to explore that in various dimensions. You know, what are the type of people? How affluent are they? But also we, we, looked, we explored the geography. You know, how far are you willing to travel to build a swimming pool? And this business was based in Surrey, just inside the M25 kind of circle. And um, I'll never forget this. We were, we were talking and he said, oh, anywhere within a 25 mile radius of here. So he said, if you drew, drew a, a compass, put a compass on this business, drew a circle. Uh, and that, and he said, but we don't go into inner London. We don't build in central London. So if you drew a 25 mile radius around, by the way, there were some very affluent London areas yeah. within their catchment. And um, so I said, oh, out of interest, why don't you cover central London. And, and just to give you a bit of narrative, the, the owner of that business inherited the business from his father, who was a pool builder before him. So yes. it's a second generation business. And he said, well, it's just too difficult getting logistically, getting equipment and kit and, um, and workforces into central London in order to build a pool. And I remember looking at him and I said, well, someone must be doing it. And in that moment, you could see in his eyes that, that, and it's what I often refer to as, you know, your kind of company mythology. Yeah. So there, there'd been this mythology that he'd been hanging on to for all these years. And literally, they were getting inquiries from homes in Chelsea and Wimbledon saying, we want an indoor pool. And they were going, oh, sorry, we, we don't do that, you know. No. And, and, and I know it was an epiphany moment for him because thereafter he began to respond to those inquiries. But, you know, it, it's very easy to kind of look at that and go, that's patently ridiculous. But I swear everyone on this, listening to this podcast and every company I've ever worked with, there is a layer of mythology that exists in your business that you are utterly blind to. That I, I've just got to do not see. I've got a very similar story, actually. I worked with a company that um, they, they bought it about four years ago, a shed building company. And um, they, were, they were knocking out these sheds at a fair old rate, sort of 30 a month, one a day. It's only a husband and wife partnership and a couple of people on their, their sort of forecourt building team. And um, <laughs> the owner of the, the business looked absolutely haggard. And I was just like, what's going on? Tell me about this. And so as the, as the first coaching session developed, they then started talking about these garden rooms, like much like what I'm sat in now, you know, see the cladding mm. and bifold doors and all those sorts of things, you know, and actually we worked, when we went through the maths for the same cost as building or the same revenue as 30 sheds, you could sell a garden room, but it made 50% more net profit and took a third <laughs> of the time to build. So I was like, why the fuck aren't you building those? Yeah. And they turned around and they said, I kid you not. And I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't jest because we actually trans, you know, totally transformed the business. But their answer, I was amazed at. They just said, because we bought a shed business. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, you know, flashes of the blindingly obvious here. Yeah. It's like, you can, you can pivot, like adapt, not pivot, but adapt your business to what the market needs. You know, 15, 20 years ago, these beautiful cedar clad you know, garden rooms didn't really, or they existed, but they weren't as popular as they are now because of media and things like that. Um, and that type of thinking, by the way, will kill businesses in, in climates of high uncertainty. And it only takes one person in the food chain as well to do that. You could have a 500 person business and it only takes one person mid, mid management to stop that idea from filtering up or filtering back down again. And that, that's like that, that demoralizes me. That's one of the reasons why I was like, no, I'm going to work with small businesses because you can, you can enforce the impact. 
Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm absolutely with you. Yeah, but, but these mythologies prevail in huge organisations, and right down to the kind of one man bands. It, it is, and it's because the mythology is the structure by which you perceive the world. You know, the, 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 the model you hold in your head of how you see the world is how you operate, how you show up. That's a gammonism, by the way. How you show up. That's a. Um, is that is affected primarily by how you orient around your story That's it. relative like, to what's going on. It's like those memes you see on Facebook where it says, this is what mum thinks I do. This is what my wife thinks I do. This is what I, my colleagues think I do. This is, you know, what, this yeah, is yeah. what I think I do. And they're all completely different. <laughs> Well, one of the one of the exercises I do with clients is is um, is the the three versions of the story, you know. So when I'm looking at their company, I say, "What's the story you tell yourself about this company? What's the story you tell other people about this company? And what's the story other people say about this company?" Because 100%. if those aren't lined up, you have a problem. You have a a internalized barrier. In, in, that is going to affect your ability to progress. So I, um, I'm interested to know a little bit more about um, uh, uh, where the gammonisms come from. Uh, here is Dave Gammon. And you talked about a 25-year business career, but probably if you're anything like me, slightly entrepreneurial, business-minded, I bet there was, you probably like had a side hustle going on when you were like 15 or something. So I'm interested to know what that story sounds like before we get into kind of a bit more about your more recent history working. Yeah, so... so- no is the answer, really. I, I, I never had a clue what I wanted to do. When I was young, I had no sense, which is why I ended up just, you know, leaving school at 16 because I hated education, just wanted to get out and start working. And I did a bunch of clerical jobs. Um, um, and I actually stumbled into a job while I was in the National Health Service. I, I stumbled into a position working in an internal audit department. Um, and from there, I then managed to, and it was the internal audit part. After spending a year there, I moved to Selfridges, and that's when I then began to get involved in the commercial world, and from Selfridges to Tesco's, and so the career went. Um, and the interesting thing about internal audit, it's not that I was commercially uh, kind of minded or, an on, or entrepreneurial. It, I've always been interested in how things work. So the great thing about being an internal auditor is you get paid to go around all the different parts of the business, interviewing people, uh, examining how things work, you know, almost fucking forensically uh, time. So I got this breadth and depth of knowledge of how a business all comes together to the point where I can pretty much point out the challenges in a company uh, before I'm told anything other than very fundamentals. And I kind of, and that, yeah, so that it was, it, my fascination has always been learning stuff in a way that I understand it. So, so the entrepreneurial bit for me, I love working with entrepreneurs, but I wouldn't characterize myself as entrepreneurial. That's kind of, that's good in a way though, because it means that you see things from a very different perspective. You've got the entrepreneur who's kind of chasing their goals and quite often trying to hand over responsibility for those goals, but chasing their goals versus you who's very kind of a bit like me, but I'm very systems like focused. I I love systems processes. I like things to be methodical. I like to see patterns, especially in business when you can start to see patterns emerging around sales and marketing and finance and things like that. Oh, there's nothing as exciting as a graph. (laughs) Yeah, it's true, isn't it? There's nothing I'm so glad as a graph. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Preaching to the converse. Well, well, let's say a graph that tells you something. Well, is... Obviously, yeah. Um, but... But, <laughs> but here's the thing. So, so I had all this knowledge 
about businesses. And then I fell into coaching pretty much by accident. You know, I'd left the corporate world. I was in the wasteland and, and I, I, I fell upon How, how did you leave the corporate world? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I engineered my own demise. I had a sudden realisation about a year, 18 months. I, I'll tell you this story because it kind of feels relevant to the work I do. Is I was looking out the window one day um, and, and my, my office overlooked a lake. I, I, was, I was very senior. At that point, I'd left Orange, which was my, what I always refer to as my most senior role, where I was director of financial operations. And I'd gone on to work for British Gas, taking on a kind of a bit of a troubleshooting role because I realised I was coming to the end of my track, but I wanted to do something while I tried to figure out. And I remember British Gas was, was not an environment I enjoyed. Um, and I now see, by the way, I now see that that was because of me. That wasn't anything to do with the company. But I'm staring out the window one day looking over this lake and a, and a thought popped in my head. And it said, if you're still here in a year, they'll be taking you out in an ambulance. Wow. And it wasn't, it wasn't one of those throwaway thoughts. It was so fucking lucid. It was so real that it couldn't be ignored. Yeah. Like and, a proper and, oh shit moment. I've got to yeah, do something it, about it this. Yeah, it totally was. I mean, I knew I was stressed and I knew I wasn't feeling healthy and I, was, I knew I wasn't sleeping well. And I just realized I have to do something. So when that something presented as an opportunity, and I always remember one of my closest colleagues at British Gas, enormously impressive guy. I won't tell you his name because I don't want him to. Sure. He, he hates that sort of uh, light on him. But um, I always remember him outside this meeting. There was a critical, pivotal meeting, and we were having a bit of toast and tea before we went in. And he said, so just so I'm clear, Dave, if you go into this meeting and you say X, there will be a role for you in, in, the, in the structure and you'll move on in your career. He said, if you go into this meeting and you say Y, probably the next phone call you'll get from anyone in British Gas will be from the HR director. <laughs> Did you go in and there it, and say why? <laughs> and, and, and I went in and said why. But he said to me, he said, I just want you to know, he said, or I want to know that you understand that. And I said, yeah, I understand that perfectly. Yeah. And I went in and I said why. And literally two days later, the phone went, HR, hi, Dave, what if you was around for a cup of coffee? <laughs> <laughs> that was the end of my corporate career but it's not um, so much don't you I, I bet you look back on that and go I'm so glad that I stood up for what I believed in as opposed to kind of just you know curtailing to um to what you know the big man wanted us to do well I think I think most of my life was characterized by imposter syndrome I think the downside of leaving school at 16 and stumbling into what uh you know by any measure was a very successful corporate career. I mean, a director at Orange, having started off as a 16-year-old clerical assistant, is a hell of a fucking mountain to climb. Yeah. And yet all the time, I always struggled with a lack of self-confidence and a belief wow. that I was out of my depth. How did that change when you, when you finally kind of broke free, I guess, and you start to take, you know, take on a more never. of a coaching role? It, it really? never. So even, even in the early days of Action Coach... Um, I still struggle with it. Even though I had this breadth and depth of knowledge, absolutely, I didn't see it. I just saw myself as, you know, I'm out of my depth here. I don't really understand this shit. I'm going to get caught out. Um, and that's what I mean by transformational breakthrough. So, so the experience of working with my mentor was literally there was a moment where suddenly that whole fucking story I'd been telling myself just fell away. And I suddenly saw 
the value of what I'd done. Yeah. Not just from a business commercial perspective, but also um, while I found coaching really easy and it freaked me out and I thought, well, either that's because coaching is bollocks or because there is something going on that makes it easy for me to do. And it was only when my own coach was challenging me around and he said to me, what was a typical experience of a day in the life of an auditor? It's because 20 years of my sort of 37 year actual business career, if you add on the coaching bit, was um, was in audit. And uh, and I ended up running and directing audit departments as well. So um, and I said, well, typically I'd spend a lot of time talking to people. And he said, but talking with what intention? I said, well, trying to figure out how things work and if this person is telling me the truth or not. Because the one thing as an auditor I had to be was independent. My opinion had to be my opinion. It had to be grounded in evidence. So if I could get them to tell me that things were broken and things weren't working, it saved me a whole bunch of work. So unbeknownst to me, I began to pattern how people were and I began to pattern a way and it's deeply subconscious in me a way of telling what's going on for that other person yeah I mean it makes perfect perfect sense to me you know my job I talked about systems and processes earlier on my job was a systems analyst and that it's that there's obviously something we're hardwired I think you and I um same way or just slightly different way but um to to be able to kind of it's a bit of a superpower really I think I think it's a gift I think it's well, an amazing I, gift. I think in terms of models, yeah, everything to me is 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 this fits into a model, either a pre-existing one or I need to create a model that works. But I also recognise um, that uh, in terms of the model of reality, you know, i.e., what is reality? There are seven and a half billion versions of that on the planet. Yeah, every one of us. You know, I, I often I heard something just recently that blew my head off which was you know if you and i if we could have brain transplants you know we literally could trans so that you saw the world in the construct that i had and i saw the world in the construct that you had it would make no fucking sense to either of us it would literally mean nothing um so when i work with people um, I'm, I'm not so much trying to change all of their map of the world, I'm not trying to re-knit all the patterns and the neural pathways. I'm trying to get them to see that that story that they hold is just a story. And in terms of, um, you know, I guess that's, that's then, you know, first of all, once you've created that shift, you can then start to move on sort of optimising their level of performance, can't you? So talk to me about kind of, you know, what, what is it that then sort of the next level, level two, where we start to create high performance in a business leader or somebody you're coaching? So to me, there are four simple elements to what creates high performance. Number one is that process we just talked about. Now I, I refer to that in my model of the world as calibration. So what I need to do, first of all, I need to make sure that that person is calibrated to the environment that they're in so that the way they show up in in whatever is going on around them is resourceful. So that, that, and what I teach people to do is to self-calibrate. 
is to notice where their thinking is taking them and notice for where they need to adjust or they need to pull back and think in a wider way. That's so that's and that, that to me is the fundamental of high performance is someone who is able to calibrate to the situations they find themselves in. Secondly, when we're in the world of business is something I call commercial acuity. So the second element of my heart is this person understands the principles by which their business works. Not fucking tactics. And I saw something the other day. I was raging LinkedIn the other day when a coach who I follow on LinkedIn put, um, join my, I think it was, I can't remember if it was a lead magnet to download or if it was a webinar, 71 marketing strategies to get you through uh, the uncertainty to get you moving forward. And I looked and thought, what a fucking waste of everyone's time. <laughs> because all you need to understand when it comes to marketing is that there are a bunch of principles that underpin marketing. And if you understand them and you reflect on your business, the strategies will come to you naturally. Or then you can go look up and Google some ideas, but you've got to understand the principles. So that's what I mean by commercial acuity. I'll go and delete that post off LinkedIn, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't you. Otherwise, I'm going to owe you a huge apology. So the third thing is then is what I call clean action, is the ability to act and to undertake a sequence of actions in pursuit of an outcome you want that isn't interrupted or deferred or procrastinated by what's going on in your head so that you've removed all of that shit that goes on in your head and you just undertake to execute a sequence of, of the right sort of actions to move you to. You know, I don't give a shit. As long as my clients are in action, I don't give a shit if they've got goals, they haven't got goals. What I need them to know is where they are and that they are taking action in pursuit of some direction. Gives you data, gives you feedback. If you, Even yeah. if you're doing the wrong action, at least you will find out quicker yeah. than doing absolutely nothing. I sometimes think goal setting is, is the, the, the most perfect form of procrastination around. Go on. You know, well, i.e., when I've got a perfectly formed goal and I've fucking done my affirmations and my idealizations and I've written them down and I read them out to myself, that somehow that is going to make me take action. And I found that isn't true for me. And I found it isn't. Most of my clients, many of whom are multi, multi millionaires, they are running businesses that are, by a commercial perspective, hugely successful have never set a fucking goal in their life. Well, they say a goal is a dream, isn't it? If there's no action to back it up with. Yeah, and I'd, I'd actually say to take some action and let the goal emerge. Okay, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I'm intrigued now. Go on, tell me a little well, bit more about that. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story about a conversation I had with a business coach. Yeah, go for ago. it. Not someone any of us know, by the way. So... Um, uh, she was really struggling to get leads. She was a business coach. She wanted to start working with small businesses, retail, uh, high street retail businesses. And she said, you know, she said, I haven't got any money. Now, the thing I know, if, if you haven't got money to invest in marketing, then you just have to be willing to do tougher stuff. Yeah. You have to be willing to overcome the human in you that tries to stop you doing the things you need to do in order. So I said to her, I said, right, I said, I'll give you a strategy that will, I guarantee you will get your business moving. I said, um, go to the yellow pages 
pull out all of the sections of the sort of high street stores you're interested in, pick up the phone and fucking phone them and say, hey, I'd love, you know, I do this. I'd love to come and have a conversation with you over a cup of coffee and just find out a little bit more about what your business is and how, what you're doing and where, where you're stuck and where you're not. And of course, as soon as I said that to her, I said, do that for a hundred businesses and you, you might get two or three appointments. And out of one of those appointments, you might get a bit of work. Who knows? You might get better stats. You might get worse stats. And of course, you, everyone listening knows what happens next. She said, oh, but I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. We all know the ending of the story. I yeah. had a sim- similar thing with um, somebody came up to me and said, Robin, I love what you're doing on social media. Marketing's working really well. You know, and everybody knows that I've got videos and books and YouTube channels and social media and I've got, I've got the works, right? And they said, what's the, what, the new coach? What's the one thing that I should be doing right now in order to build my profile? I said, uh, doing videos. And, and he thought for a moment and then he looked at me, what's the second most important thing that I could be doing right now? <laughs> You're like, no, you missed the point. Like, it's all about, like, if you can build a YouTube channel and do Facebook Lives and get comfortable, like, being that presenter and tell yeah, yeah. coach, you're winning. You're, like, light years ahead. You can repurpose all of that content. It starts everything else. Oh, no, no, but I, I hate the camera. I look rubbish on camera. And it's like, no, you just go and do some videos. And it's just total block. <laughs> so so one, of the, one of the challenges is, you know, we live in an, 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 an increasingly complex world both commercially and personally life is more complicated and we we are reaching a cognitive threshold of our ability to solve some of the problems that are going on right now because we just don't have the the brain capacity to to think at that level and evolution is going to take a few more million years before we will have that level of of capacity so so we've got to deal with when when we come up with these obstacles and i love the title of that book i've never read the book because i didn't need it i didn't need it once I'd read the title. The obstacle is the way. Yeah. The obstacle is the fucking way. Whatever it is you are coming up with as the, as the objection, deal with that. Because what I know is it boils down to these three or four fundamental survival instincts we have in us. You know, one is fear of rejection. One is fear of the unfamiliar. And one is fear of change. Yeah. All of which are biologically coded in us. We are biologically coded and designed to respond to, to things that we perceive to, to threaten us, to, to either threaten our ability to stay in the tribe, our status within the tribe, or our survival. Well, it's, it's interesting, actually, because this ties in quite nicely with the, the four things which you were, you were running through and, and fearless, because I see it, the way I see it is a lot of people see um, the things that they're afraid of as binary. So, you know, video or picking up the phone to call people, they see it as I can or I can't. And actually, we can all, we can all just go and, you know, at least pick up the phone. Mm. We can all punch in a telephone number. Yeah. We can all put it to our ear. You know, they might say hello and then we think, oh, shit, well, hang up now. You know, but we can do at least some of the, the stages in order to get us there. But most people are just like, they see it as binary. Yes, no, I can do it, I can't do it. And Ooh. so they make no effort at all. Well, and also they don't, under, they don't explore. And part of what I talk about in, in terms of when I'm teaching people to self-calibrate is to notice for the signals in the system that they get. So when you go to do that thing, you pick that phone up and you go to do that thing. What are the signals in the system? What, what is your body telling you? And how, why, why is your body react? And what it typically is, is it's creating an amygdala response. It's creating a fight, flight, freeze response. Now, that causes a couple of problems. Number one is it tends to make you 
pause. <laughs> it tends to make you stop, back away. Um, all of the oxygen in your brain evacuates your brain and floods to the muscle groups, which is why when you're on the phone and you're cold calling or you've got a difficult conversation to have with someone, why afterwards you always go, oh, bollocks, if only I'd said that. <laughs> yeah, Because as the oxygen restores to your brain, you get cognitive. So it's recognising that those signals, they are a biological coding that is basically allied to the fact that you might die. <laughs> and of course we know that's nonsense you aren't going to die from a phone call and it's getting people to see and to, to acknowledge the signals in the system but to operate in spite of them yeah well it's, and that's it's, what i mean by clean action and in business like fearing i always say to people you don't have to like have no fear it's about fearing the things ever so slightly less because if you can just like if we've sown the seed of an idea enough that you're willing just to be brave and fearless and just kind of step into the unknown a bit then that's where the ma- the real magic happens Ooh. makes such a massive difference and and i think it's interesting what you're talking about goals as well because um you know I, I always tell people not to have like loads of different goals just have like one overarching goal because other stuff will get joined up along the way like you said but then once you've got the goal in place you can at least reverse engineer what that pathway might look like in order to get there and yeah, you'll come up against challenges, but then you've got to be tenacious in order to over those, mm. overcome those t- challenges and, and carry on kind of moving forward. And I think, like you said, it's all about action. It's all about keeping on mm. moving forward. And I think, I think then, you know, when you, when you see business owners just make that little tiny shift, all of a sudden it starts to create bigger and bigger and bigger shifts. It's like a butterfly so, effect. So what I'm looking for... When I'm working with someone who who is not taking action in what looks like a sensible direction, I'm looking for, uh, I I don't refer to it as a goal or, or, you know, or even, you know, sometimes more people are motivated by the way of moving away from a poor position than they are moving towards a, a, a goal. So, so goals work for the minority, not the majority. Most of us are motivationally triggered by moving away from bad shit more yep. than we are moving towards good. So what I look for is, is, is a, the, the term I look for is to create the tension in the system that creates action. And that tension sometimes is, is a balance between an outcome and a current state that is undesirable. Sometimes it's purely because of the undesirable nature of the current state. Sometimes it's the goal so fucking exciting that you, you just want to go for it. And sometimes Interestingly, I'm noticing more and more that the tension is created by the action itself or by the measurement of the progress of the action. That's where people get. I find this when I go out and do my morning exercise, my morning bike ride. Um, I find the motivation for that comes from my measurement. Now I've got Strava on my phone and I can track and it shows me how well I did on the different elements of the ride where I set a new route. I do the same kind of pretty much route every day. And I'm finding that the tension in the system comes from wanting to beat yesterday. It's not about wanting to be fit and wanting to lose 10 kilograms. That's my overall outcome is to get myself back to a position that I held three, four years ago from a fitness perspective. It's not that I'm, uh, it's not, I'm, there's not enough tension in the system by where I am now because I've been a little bit fat for a little while and it hasn't motivated me to act so far. So my current position is not bad enough to make me move. Yeah. And so I've got to find what it, where's the tension in the system that makes me do something. So sometimes I've got to change the action. 
And I'm going to find something that isn't bike riding. If bike well, might, riding isn't might, motivating it, me. It might be a matter of kind of how, how you're measuring it. So, because I'm a keen cyclist as well, roadie. Mm. So I go out on my road bike fairly regularly. I'll quite, quite happily, merrily chuck out 30, 40, 50 miles in a ride. And I, what I found is that um, when I gave up trying to be king of the mountains... Because I'm a big, I, I've got a few, don't get me wrong. So I'm relatively, I've always been kind of okay on the spectrum of exercise. So I've got a few. But when I actually stopped measuring myself against other people, King of the Mountains, when I stopped measuring myself against previous rides, all of a sudden my world opened up. I started, the awareness of what was going on around me increased for a start. So I started to enjoy the rides more. Yeah, what I yeah. started to measure, so rather than, because again, those two things that I was measuring, did I beat last the last right yesterday's ride did i get a com they're binary again did i get them yes or no and actually what i started to measure was on a scale of one to ten how much effort did i feel i put into that ride compared to how you know what results i wanted to get out of it and so i could go into a ride and if actually i just wanted an easy ride you know come back and it was like a six out of ten i'm happy with that like that's a great result for me You see, what I, what I find interesting in this, and again, one of the principal objections I have with any kind of priest, I'm a huge um, advocate for the sovereignty of the individual. I do not believe in frameworks and models as a, as a source of business growth. Um, I, I don't believe that a, there is a six-step system which if everyone followed would have a hugely successful business. It's bollocks. It's never worked, never what? will work. What, Dave? And it, just and it shattered all my dreams. That's like... And it, and it, the reason it doesn't work is two things. Is your business is set in a unique context and you are set in a unique context. You as an individual. So motivation, as we've just explored there in something as innocuous as fucking cycling, where you think everyone would, is motivation will come from different points from different people. And learning where you create tension in your own system is what I mean by self-coaching. Is That's what I mean by yeah. clean action, is finding the right level of tension that gets you to take the action you need to take or gets you to find a different way of taking that action that gets the same outcome. What I won't allow is pra- procrastination or deferral on the basis of something being uncomfortable. But you can follow a business model, like, but provided you you try and follow it and you're doing something, it, irrespective of what the model is, it's actually, there will be a good or, you know, there'll be an outcome of some sort and that's what you can then measure. Yeah, and where am I with this? Because, you know, I had a, quite an interesting debate with someone a while back about a, a franchise, not, not a business coaching franchise, a, a, a product franchise. And I said, and they, they were articulating some of the successful models. And I said, well, what's the failure rate? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're giving me all these examples of people that have made millions of pounds in inverted commas out of this franchise, but you're not telling me what the foul rate is. Because I tell you now, those, are, those examples you're giving me are going to be outliers. They are going to be those, those unusual people. And there are some of them, by the way, in Action Coach as well, who, for whom the franchise model and, and what they are being asked to do by the franchise so perfectly fits with who they are that it fucking works. Yeah. But if you believe for a minute that because someone else did X and followed X path, that that will work for you, that's horseshit. 
Gotcha. That makes perfect you've sense. Gotta Not- work, you've got to work in the models that help you understand who you are and how you work to best get where you're going. And I've found this true of the companies I coach, you know, the MDs I coach, you know, as I say, some of them immensely successful people, is they do it their way. Yeah. always their way, the way that we're, and what I find with them is my, my work with them is just to expand what's available to them. So sometimes get them to see slightly wider options than they have now, and also to formulate some different types of responses, to formulate different ways of opera, to get them to see that, okay, you know, what they've done as a pattern has been very successful, clearly, but that there are other patterns available. Yeah, I mean, in part, I know, I know you you've, you have opinion on business books, but in part, that's why why I wrote "Take Your Shot" as a story. You've read "Take Your yeah. Shot," haven't you? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I've, I've, read, I've written a business book myself, so you know, the, yeah. the, these I, I get, I get them. But I tell it as a story to trigger those shifts as opposed to saying, right, here's the formula. Here, here, If you do X, Y, and Z, and I was very, yes, it has got five frameworks which I've created for my business coaching practice, but actually they're kind of irrelevant. It's actually about the story and the interaction between the coach and Russ, the client. You know, and that and that is actually the bit which it, nobody ever comes back to me and quotes like my product architecture model that I refer to in the book. They come back to me and tell me how much of themselves they saw in either Russ yeah. or David the coach. Funny enough, he's called David as well. Not you. He wasn't based on you. But Best ones always are, Robin. <laughs> <laughs> Get your name um, changed, mate. There you go. Yeah. So, well, actually, I, I based David the character in the book on how I wanted to kind of how I perceive myself in 20 yeah, years' yeah. time. So um, driving around a countryside and golf courses and my Range Rover, just helping out random strangers with their, their business, you know. You know, like this, this kind of idea about business books, being as you've teased it out of me now, you know, I feel, I feel obliged to, because having written a book, you know, so here's where I sit with, with business books, you know, just to finally exercise that demon is that um, there are a number of reasons why I challenge people on their obsession with reading business books. The first one is that sometimes, and I've noticed this a lot, reading is, again, an elegant form of procrastination. Yep. Secondly, as I've found, having read a lot of business books myself, is that fundamental, when you boil all the bollocks away, they're all pretty much telling you the same thing. So once you've read one, you've pretty much read them all. Yep. Um, And the third reason is, there's better ideas out there and better books out there. So interestingly, my clients, um, when I did the action coach thing, I was like, you know, you've got to read, you've got to read. That was one of the things we, an educated client is an easy client. You've got to read, get them to read books. And then I found that they just wouldn't. And, and so I started to get them to read books that were nothing to do with business. The only business book I've pretty much got all of my clients to read is Steve Jobs's autobiography. Yeah. And the only reason I got them to read that is so that they can see if a nasty piece of shit like that can can turn out a business like Apple, then uh, that tells you you've just got to be authentic and you've just got to connect with what it is you do to make your business as successful as your business is going to be. You you might not end up with an Apple, but you will end up with as successful a business as it is possible for you to have. That's why I get them to read. But I get them to read books about all sorts of things. You know, one of the most popular books amongst all my clients was a book called No Easy Day. And it was about the assassination of bin Laden. It was written by one of the Navy SEALs who was involved in it. And and there were stories and metaphors in that book that they found so useful 
um, in their own businesses, not least being just stepping back a bit and going, well, if we get this wrong, no one's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas I, when you're a Navy SEAL, you get it wrong, people will die. Yeah. Interestingly, I've um, read a couple of Ant Middleton's books. He's obviously the Ooh. guy who is um, uh, one of the presenters, one of the staff sergeants on uh, SAS yeah, and yeah. Bears Wins. And um, I, he's a bit of a dick, I'll be honest. There's some of the stuff in there where you're just like, really? But equally, there's also some sound advice when he starts to go into kind of, you know, how they behave with soldiers and things like that. You're like, actually, there's so much stuff in there that is more relevant to business than any of the business books out there. Um, so I'm totally on board with that. I have, I have a friend who was a tier one special forces operator and he's, he's been out for about five years now. And I talk to him often about this, but, but it's, it, oh, you know, this is a little bit like when, uh, when we try to, to create this metaphor of a business coach, like a sports coach. And, we, and I don't like these metaphors and I don't like these analogies. They're dangerous. And it's the same when it comes to looking at the world of a special forces operator. Because one of the things, and funny enough, I was thinking about this in the shower this morning. Uh, great little image for everyone out there. Thank, thanks, um, Dave. This, <laughs> this, I can't undo that one. <laughs> um, and, it, and it's because I noticed that some of the other presenters on that special forces program, that Who Dares Wins program, are now touting themselves as corporate speakers. Yeah. And I got to thinking about how helpful or not helpful. And one of the things I realized, you know, when you speak to my friend about the training that you go through, both in the military and then if you go into special forces, is that that training fundamentally deconstructs your neural model of the world and reconstructs it so that you can be a soldier. Yeah. So um, now we don't get this luxury in the corporate world or in the business world. We don't get the luxury of spending 18 weeks deconstructing our internal model, breaking ourselves down to nothing so that we can rebuild ourselves into being what we need to be. Yeah. Not only do we not do that, it's not right for most of us to do that. So there's one element there where that military metaphor, I realize, doesn't work. Within it, the way they organize themselves and the way they structure operations, there's some interesting stuff. There's some interesting parallels. But it's the same with sports people. When we say, oh, a business coach is like a sports coach. Every sportsman has a coach. But there is a fundamental difference that's really important to grasp here. Sports takes place within a closed system. So if you want to be the world's best fucking... Oh, actually, I say this quite often. The easiest way to make a living is to be an Olympic sports person. If you're really good at it and you become... And it's easy, not because it's easy physically. It's anything but easy physically. But it's very easily mentally because you're operating in a closed system. You know, if you're a swimmer, you're, you operate in a swimming pool. Now, there are very limited differences in swimming pools. Yeah. From play, it's not like they add a few metres to some. Or, There's no variables. Or That's what you're so saying. the variables are very limited. Yeah, gotcha. You go into business and you are immediately confronted with uncertainty. And, of course, as a human being, uh, one thing we resist and we, we become anxious about is when we are exposed to uncertainty. Gold. That's, so I mean, that's brilliant. So... Um, as a business coach, I, I can't, you know, none of us that, that claim to be business coaches and that claim to help businesses, none of us can do it from a position of 
if you hit the ball like this or you use your arm like this in the pool, you will gain time because none of us know that that is true. Yeah. The thing with business is everything is shroud. I often talk to my clients about um, there is no such thing as a perfect decision in your business. There is no thing that says, if you do that, this will happen. Said it's impossible. So, so get over yourself for a moment. And by the way, the CEOs I work with, in, you know, some of these FTSE 100 CEOs, they, they have a bit of luck. They, they take some good decisions. And the result of that, those good decisions collide with a favorable market and produce an outcome. And they think they're fucking messiahs. Yeah. So I've got a, I have a theory, which is around uh, internet marketers. If you look at the founding fathers of internet marketing, you know, the, uh, the Ryan Dice, Jay Abrahams, the, you know, there's a whole load of them that we could, the Frank Kearns of the world, you list Ooh. a whole lot of them off, right? They're all in their late 40s, early 50s. And there's a reason why they're so successful now is because they they turned 18 when the internet was born back in 1988, yeah. whenever it was, yeah, yeah. right? So 30 years later, they were buying buying leads when they were like 10 cents a lead or whatever, or sent, sent a lead, like an email address. So they bought hundreds of thousands or millions of them and they're still dining off them. It's like a big fat elephant that they've killed yeah, yeah. and stuck in their freezer for years that they're just picking bits away on. And much respect, good, but it's about right timing, right environment, you know, right circumstances and everything else. And it's, if you look at um, the likes of uh, Steve Jobs, Steve Ballmer, Bill Gates, same thing, all the same age. They, they had access to things like MIT or, you know, uh, various different universities. And um, was it Steve Jobs had access to, I think there was either Cisco systems or one of the biggest like computer yeah. parts um, manufacturers he had access to their warehouse the guy said go and take whatever you want you know so is, is it any wonder these guys were successful yeah. when everything now, fell into place of course it's possible to put yourself in the way of luck but recognizing that in business that that whatever decision you take moment to moment you're, you're always making trade-offs Every, an operational decision is always a trade-off typically between customer experience and margin so any decision someone takes, you know, one of my clients is a wholesaler, and if they fuck up an order, um, they have to make a decision, do we courier the next order out or do we send it by post? I yeah. said, well, that's just a trade-off between customer experience and margin. So, so when you bollock your staff because they couriered something that they could have posted, you have to remember that you've that in that moment they made the best decision. They, they made what they thought was the right trade-off. I've, I've got a really, we're going to have to wrap up soon, but I've got a really great um, uh, story about this actually, which was uh, one, of, one of the coaches on my team shared uh, with, with our, our clients. And um, he said that, because he works with sort of similar, slightly smaller businesses and you actually, he's kind of more in the one to three million pound sort of bracket, you know, engineering manufacturing businesses. Mm. And the, um, the MD of the business was taking it upon himself to go and deliver or pick up components from somewhere. It's a three hour round trip to save 50 pounds worth of um, courier fees. And when they worked out what the, the hourly rate, so it's a million pound a year business or something like that. When they, when they divided the, the amount of money per hour that he was responsible for his whole business, it's like a thousand pounds an hour. So to save yeah, 50 yeah. pounds, it was costing him 3000 pounds. And it's just like, it's just ludicrous. I know mean, the math doesn't necessarily equate exactly like that, but you know what I mean? Oh, it, 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 recognizing the value of time. It is is crucial for anyone, and whether you're in whether you're running a business or not, you know, recognizing that you know four thousand one hundred and sixty weeks 
is what you get if you live to be 80. You know, that, that no one can fucking extend that. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe by looking after yourself, you can eke out a few more years. But ultimately, you know, recognising the value of time and the value of the use of time moment to moment it's one of the critical components of clean action. You know, is, yeah. is am I doing the right things and am I, am I optimizing my use of the assets around me, not least of which time is a, is a king? There we go. Now, speaking of time, Dave, we're going to hop yeah. into the fearless business time machine. And uh, yeah. you, you, get to, we're going to, you get to dial in which year we're going to go back to. But mm. you pick a, a, um, a sliding doors moment in your life uh, where you've got to go back and give a piece of advice to yourself. Um, what, what year would that be? And what piece of advice would you give to yourself? I'm just trying to work out what year it was. 90, 1992. Cool. Um, 38 years ago. No, yeah. 28 years ago. 28 years ago. And, and the death of my mother. And that was a pivotal moment for me. You know, that was a, that was my first direct confrontation with mortality um, and and that that no one lives forever. So that was the first thing I had to confront was the the idea that. And it was it was a huge wake up call for me at the time. I remember suddenly I went on this. My sister was convinced I was trying to kill myself. I went on this amazing splurge of adventure activities: skiing, mountain climbing, um, caving. I, I went mental for a period of about six months and. Uh, the advice I give myself now, looking back at that moment, was that was the time to really believe in myself. Yeah. And I didn't. And I, I defaulted back to what I felt comfortable doing, what I felt safe doing. Uh, so, so my advice to anyone is, is be aware of the signals in your system all the time and, and kind of know when, know when to believe in yourself and know when to challenge your own thinking. Great. I love know that really sometimes powerful. the time sometimes the time feels right and the time isn't right. And the more you begin to understand the signals that go on in your own system, the easier life becomes to navigate and the easier intuitive decision making becomes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's such a powerful message. Dave, um, I, I really appreciate and respect you as a coach. Um, I, I'm really grateful for the time which you've given up to come onto the Fearless Business podcast. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure we Man, could probably this has chat been for a ball. hours. This has been a ball. <laughs> I've loved every second of it. <laughs> so you work with um, uh, sort of MDs, really, in, in larger businesses. So um, I'm sure, I mean, obviously a lot of our audience is sort of one-man bands, but a lot of them coach and consult with bigger businesses. So how, how can they get in? In touch with with you and what have you got to offer hey look simplest thing at this point i'm in the middle of designing stuff and rolling some new stuff out uh, the, the easiest thing is to just drop me an email dave at sixcentsbusiness.com i will connect you into my my portal from which you have access to blogs i produce videos i produce programs i run uh, you know, webinars that I do. I'm trying to get into the habit now of doing a weekly webinar. Um, so, you know, feel free to fill your boots with the free stuff. And, and um, 
uh, primarily my work with small businesses now is I, I do a bit of coaching work with with owners of businesses, but I'm primarily working with directors and managers on leadership development programs and increasingly employees on this idea of high performance and how you access high performance. So, so if you know of any need out there and want to connect with me, that that really helps me. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to connect with anyone, happy to have a conversation with anyone, always happy to help and share ideas whenever possible. Awesome. Uh, great. Well, we'll pop a, a, a link to the email address and your social media channels in the show notes as well when we publish those. Um, but Dave, it's, like you said, it has been a blast. It's been a thoroughly, a thorough pleasure having you onto the, the Fearless Business Podcast. It's been, it's been a ball. Thank you, Robin. And, and it, it's really great to just share ideas and share where the commonalities are and also understand where the, the differences in approach are because there's learning for everyone in, in those differences, for me, for you, and for hopefully everyone listening. Absolutely, 100%. Cheers, Dave. Cheers, buddy. 